Good morning. My name is Reese. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for being here this morning, church. It's really wonderful to gather together and to worship together, and uh, what a powerful time of worship it was. So uh, we're moving through this series, and it's simply called Faithful. And the idea of the series is that we would take a few weeks to explore this core attribute of God, and we would celebrate certain occasions and stories in the biblical narrative where God really showed his faithfulness to his people. And so last week we talked about our own tendency to forget God's faithfulness. And we looked at a few stories from the book of Exodus and that whole narrative and how God's people continually forgot about the amazing miracle that was taking the people of God out of slavery and to the promised land. This week, this morning, we're going to look at how faithlessness is this like deep-rooted virus within the human condition. Welcome to your encouraging Sunday morning sermon. But we're going to look at how despite that, God remains faithful. Despite our faithlessness, God remains faithful. The Hebrew word for faithful is this word emet. Emet. And I want you to keep that in your mind. And the, the word kind of means uh, it has to do with stability and reliability and trust and consistency and ultimately love. Emet. Despite our faithlessness, God shows his emet. And this is not just an attribute that God holds, but it's something that we receive from God and we can display ourselves. Emet. To be faithful. I'm excited this morning to go through this word with you. Um, one of the best accidents that has ever happened was in 1947. I wasn't there, but I heard about it. It, was, uh, it occurred when a number of uh, Bedouin shepherds were herding goats in the Judean desert. And um, what had happened was uh, one of the shepherds, for no apparent reason, threw a stone um, into a cave opening in a cliffside. And what happened was they heard a uh, shattering of what seemed like pottery or something, and they went to investigate what had happened. And what they saw inside were large clay pots um, that had been broken by their stones they were throwing in there. Um, unbeknownst to them, they had discovered possibly one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of all time. They stumbled across it. These were the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they're a collection of ancient manuscripts that had been preserved in clay jars by this ancient community that scholars call Qumran. And so there would be what we would call biblical scrolls that they found in this cave and surrounding caves. So Isaiah, Habakkuk, Daniel, Jeremiah, and non-biblical scrolls as well, like the war scroll and the festival scroll and the community rule. And some of these scrolls, they dated as far back as uh, 2nd century BCE. So that would have been a couple hundred years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And they would contain 
the same words as translators figured out these scrolls, they would contain some of the same words that you would read if you were to open up your Bible in front of you to the book of Isaiah and read. Isn't that phenomenal? It was one of the greatest discoveries. And since it happened, the world has been really captivated by it. There have been so many uh, documentaries and magazines that have come out to cover this. And I think whenever we, dis we discover, we observe something ancient, we marvel at its preservation. But with the Dead Sea Scrolls, for most people, it was something more than that. It was something far more than just something ancient that had been found. The focus for so many believers turned to God and his faithfulness to provide his people with scripture. Like the author of Hebrew writes, is living and active just as it was thousands of years ago. There was a reflection on God's faithfulness. And what we find is that God's faithfulness can be found everywhere we look. It's not just found in ancient manuscripts. Everywhere we look, we can catch a glimpse of God's faithfulness. It could be through the loyalty of a parent or a friend, or through the good-natured persistence of your doctor or your therapist. Although ancient, this attribute of God, it's just as present today. What's also true, just as it was thousands of years ago, is that faithlessness is also just as present as it was thousands of years ago. And so if faithfulness can be defined as this continual showing of trust, belief, and loyalty in someone or something, faithlessness can be defined as the absence of this trust, this loyalty, and this belief in someone or something. And we can be faithless people, can't we? It seems that people can be so quick to move from an idea or a person or a belief system once it kind of loses any sort of clarity or stability and then turn to the next idea or belief system or person. It's not something that we can just chalk up to postmodernism or our current cultural moment, though. This is as ancient as it comes. Faithlessness, it's been floating around in the air we breathe like a spore since the serpent breathed it out in the garden. It is an ancient sin. And as we look at the biblical narrative, people continually turn from God to other things. From Old Testament saints to Jesus' followers and disciples to early church leaders. How does God respond to faithlessness in his people? God's response to our faithlessness is faithfulness. God's response to our faithlessness is faithfulness. And we're to look exactly at how this has played out. So let's pray together. Lord,
we are really, really grateful to be able to gather together here on a Sunday morning, take a look deep into your word, find truth, and let it shape us and form us and spur us on to look more like you, Jesus. So God, as we reflect on your faithfulness, would we be motivated and inspired to imitate you? And as we acknowledge our own faithlessness, would this not be a source of shame, but would it be a conviction that we have a long way to go to look like you, Jesus. And so God, gather here this morning, there are so many of us that come into a Sunday service anxious, stressed, exhausted. Would this time together ultimately be uplifting and encouraging that we would grow closer to you and fall more in love with you, God. And if we leave here feeling fearful or ashamed, uh, would we recognize in our mind that there's something not right about that? And so, Holy Spirit, well up inside this place, would we feel your presence? And would we all collectively worship you and glorify you together? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, church, well, would you open up with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. And that's where we're going to read for a little bit. And there should be a slide that pops up as well if you want to turn your eyes to the screen. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Okay, verse 11. The saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So in Paul's second letter to his younger apprentice and friend, who is Timothy, he writes down some beautiful words that a lot of New Testament scholars believe would be a hymn that the early church would have known and sang and recited together. And so this, these, these would be words that would be familiar to Timothy and to his church. And so as we read this hymn or this short poem in our Bible, the contradictory kind of statements, the contrasting statements in the hymn, they, they catch our eye. For example, in verse 11, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign. And so this final verse, verse 13, is uh, especially powerful and interesting and relevant to our series. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. And these are two opposite words here at play in faithless and faithful. And in the Greek, uh, it is apistos and pistos. Two 
different words kind of contrasting one another. And so I want to hit pause for a moment as we look at this text. I want to divert a second. Some of us might become a little bit confused or disillusioned if we read verse 12 and 13 together. Seems like there are some really some, some real contradictory statements here. Paul writes that if we deny him, he also will, will deny us. But then follows with, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. I just want to touch on this for a second. There is a difference between denying someone and being faithless towards someone. If faithlessness, as we defined earlier, is this absence of trust, loyalty, and belief in someone or something, denial can be defined as, and this is literally Oxford Dictionary, as the refusal of something requested or desired. The refusal of something requested or desired. Jesus talks about this exact thing when he teaches on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as an unforgivable sin. And the severity of this sin comes from this person's conscious and definite refusal to accept Jesus' gift of the Holy Spirit. We could, we could just as easily call it the denial of the Holy Spirit. Denial is this stake in the ground. It's closing the door and locking it from the inside. Whereas faith, faithlessness, it's this wandering, aimless sin. And so what I especially love about verse 13 is that it's followed up with an explanation. He remains faithful for he cannot, he cannot deny himself. God remains faithful to us because he cannot and will not actively go against who he is. And so we looked at this clear example of this last week, if you were joining us, in Exodus 32, when Moses and God are having this conversation, this discourse on the top of the mountain after the golden calf was constructed. Moses pleads with God to stay true to his character, who he says he is, and spare his people after their blatant act of faithlessness. And God does. God is faithful. It's a core part of who he is. He doesn't leave us, forsake us, or give up on us even when we're faithless. So, Paul, who was writing this letter to Timothy, not only as a Jewish man, but also as a Pharisee and teacher of the law, would be really familiar with this story, but also with God's famous self-description as he's talking with Moses in Exodus 34, verse 6, where God beautifully says to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so for centuries, for centuries, the authors of the Bible and believers alike, they circled back to this text and God's self-description to be reminded of God's character. 
This is how God describes himself. It's who he is. And God cannot deny himself. Um, one of my favorite all-time films is Interstellar. Christopher Nolan uh, directed the film and wrote the story. Um, it's this sprawling, crazy space adventure. I don't know if any of you love space adventures. There's just something about them. It's just like none of us will ever get to do that, so we just get to watch it on TV. And so it's this crazy adventure that this NASA pilot and a team, they embark on in order to save humanity from extinction. What's really about is this single father's love for his daughter. And as we go throughout the film, and as you watch the film, you come to realize that more and more. And this NASA pilot, who is the single father, has to leave the daughter to embark on this mission to save humanity from extinction and go into space. And the daughter hates him for it. Hates him for it. Refuses to say goodbye to her father as he's leaving, like teary-eyed, to go on this mission. Is bitter. And in this kind of denial and refusal to say goodbye, uh, her father leans in and says, I love you. I love you. And I'm, I'm coming back. At the end of the film, near to the end of the film, the daughter ends up this hero after brilliantly coming up with ideas and systems to help save humanity from extinction. And a lot of stuff happens, but as her father returns from space and because of space-time dynamics, she's aged considerably faster than him, and she is an uh, elderly woman on her deathbed. And her father enters the hospital room where she's lying, and this is where they reunite for the first time since she was a little girl, since that moment that she refused to say goodbye. And she says to her father, no one believed me, but I knew you'd come back. How, he responds. Because my dad promised me. That's what she says. And so when I reflect on God's faithfulness to us, I find myself in my heart responding similarly. How do I know God will continue to believe in me, pursue me, remain loyal to me? How? Because my Father promised me. It's who he is. So last week, we focused on this group of people, Israel, who were brought out of slavery in Egypt by God through this appointed leader, Moses, and so many miracles, profound miracles. And so in the book of Numbers, in chapter 14, we see the same group of people traveling together on their journey to the promised land. Promised land is this homeland, this place where the people of Israel would flourish, be at peace, multiply, 
have families, build homes. They were coming out from slavery, traveling through the wilderness to this place of hope. On their way, the Israelites grew fearful. They grew scared of these nations and people groups around them that seemed imposing to them, believing that it would be cut down in the wilderness, their resources stripped, and they would just be buried in the desert. And so the Israelites, as they're traveling through the wilderness, they are at odds with groups like the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites. We don't know for sure, but maybe the Mennonites. I don't know how far they were from Abbotsford. And so the Israelites, they were fear-mongering, say there are giants around them. They were just like grasshoppers compared to these people. So they doubted God. They doubted his character. They doubted his power. They doubted what God had, what they had clearly seen God do in the past. And they said, we don't want to trust this God. So they decided they would stone and kill Moses, appoint a new leader that would take them back to Egypt so that they could be slaves again. And if you were here last week, uh, this would be a familiar story to you. This is something that every time the Israelites come up against the hurdle, they say, oh, maybe it would just be better if we went back where we came from, hung out with the Egyptians, and were enslaved to them for the rest of their lives. That would be better than this fear, this constant fear of these people. God is understandably hurt and angry over this. As the one who led them out of slavery and fought for them, loved them, promised them they would return home. He's hurt. He's angry. But Moses steps in and he pleads for his people. And this is uh, in Numbers chapter 14, verse 17. Moses says, And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised. Saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding and steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of their fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. God spares Israel, continues to fight for them and provide for them as they make their way towards the promised land, despite their absolute faithlessness. God remains faithful, true to his character, never denying who he is. And as I read this text and the story from Numbers, I can't help but reflect on the fact that our actions mirror, or mirror that of the Israelites all too often. 
So often we make the mistake when we read the Old Testament of relating the Israelites' experience to our lives as persecution. And we use stories like this and and many stories from the Old Testament and what the Israelites went through to say, oh, us as God's people, we we are persecuted. We are, and there is a time and place for that. There is persecution. We need to look back at these stories, though, and the people of Israel and take a good look at the faithlessness of these people and, and look into our, like, introspectively into our lives. Are we repeating the same thing? Israel's faithlessness was cyclical. It was like clockwork. You can count on it as you leaf through the pages of the Old Testament. What we notice is even more reliable is God's faithfulness in light of Israel's shortcomings. We see this time and time again in profound and dramatic ways. There is no greater showing of God's faithfulness than Jesus Christ. God bound to human limitations, face to face with people daily. In Jesus, we see faithfulness in human form. One who showed belief and trust in people, displayed emet in all circumstances. As we see the life and ministry of Jesus play out, we begin to see the same cycles repeat themselves in the people around Jesus. Jesus delivers people and loves them, but people curse him. They doubt him, revoke their belief in him, and show loyalty to their oppressors. The cycle, it just repeats itself. The faithlessness of humanity could have driven Jesus to a place of anger and bitterness and loneliness. He could have just said, you know what, Father? These people are a lost cause. It's the same thing. Let them go. Let them go their own way. Jesus could have very well responded in that way. Instead, as he's beaten and tortured by these people, Jesus says this, forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus subverts our expectations of how someone might respond to faithlessness. What a God we serve. What a Savior we follow. One who is faithful when we are the opposite. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up as we wind down. I have to end with this because it's really all we have. 
And as a, as a preacher, if I fail to land with this, I don't even know what I'm doing. The gospel, the good news is this. We are, by nature, faithless people. It's something deeply rooted in who we are, who continually, time after time, turn our faces from God and place our trust and belief in other things. The understandable response from God would be to cast us aside, leave us, forsake us. The reality is this, though, is that God sent his son, Jesus, to be the embodiment of faithfulness to us, to redeem our faithlessness, make a way for us to return to our Father in flourishing relationship and to live a life devoted to him. We're going to take communion after we worship God. And as we take the bread and the cup, would we be reminded of Jesus' crucifixion and sacrifice as an act of faithfulness towards us? Because despite our faithlessness, God remains faithful.